And as you remain standing, you can grab your Bibles and make your way towards Psalm chapter 16 is where we are going to be on this Easter morning. We'll take a break from our ongoing series through Exodus uh, to consider what some have called the golden psalm, others have referred to as David's jewel. And we want to look at verses 8 through 11 in our study this morning, but to give context to those verses, I actually want to read the whole psalm for us and then pray for our time. So children, as I, I read the psalm, I want you to see if you can notice where it is in this psalm that we find the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it's there. So let's listen as God speaks to us through His Word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that your word is better than life, that it is living and active, that you've breathed it out for our correction, our training and instruction. So we pray that by your spirit you would breathe it out into our hearts this morning, that we might know the full joy that's found in Jesus Christ, that we might... Rejoice yet again in the power that He has, the sovereignty with which He rules over death and Hades. So give us ears to hear, for we know that we're not promised to hear another sermon. Give me a mouth to preach, for I'm not promised to preach another sermon. Do good to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One great theologian that's largely forgotten to church history in our time is an old Scottish Presbyterian named John Duncan. And he was nicknamed Rabbi Duncan because of his love for the Jewish people and his missionary endeavors for the Jews in and around Europe in the early to mid 19th century. And he was an utterly unique man. Some have called him rather eccentric. It seemed as though God threw away the mold after he had created Rabbi Duncan. And it was in 19, or actually 1837 that he married his wife, Janet Towner. They soon conceived and bore a young child. And in the coming years, Janet conceived again, but it was a delivery that went through immense complications. And so tragic was it that, in fact, Duncan's wife and second-born child died there. And it was a few days later that his wife was was in her casket, and as 
sometimes would happen in that ancient time, of course, people would be viewing it just before it was placed into the grave. And because of his uh, uniqueness and somewhat eccentric manner, uh, Rabbi Duncan was found muttering something over and over next to the casket. And if you knew Rabbi Duncan at the time, he was prone to mutter things. And if you creeped in close enough, what you actually heard him muttering was Westminster Shorter Catechism 37, over and over and over, an answer that ends as he was applying it to his wife's body, this body, being still united to Christ, does rest in this grave until the resurrection. This body, being still united to Christ, does rest in the grave until the resurrection. Should the Lord tarry, all of our bodies will rest in the grave. Should the Lord tarry, all of us will be placed in the grave by loved ones. What kind of comforts, confidences, or convictions will hold you when you lay someone in a grave? Well, the greatest comfort, confidence, and conviction that you ought to have when you lay anyone in the grave is the very truth that we're going to look at this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from a text that I suppose for many of you seems rather obscure on Easter Sunday, but I trust we'll see soon enough why it is actually most appropriate. It's been common throughout the Christian tradition that uh, we've understood meditation on death to be a primary practice for growing in godliness. Uh, you could point to someone like Augustine who is said to often have death as the subject of his meditations, or uh, Jonathan Edwards when he was just a teenager resolved to think often upon my dying day, he wrote, and the common circumstances that attend to it. And kids, if you've been in this church for a number of years, you've surely heard me say by now, if the Lord continues to tarry and 110 years go by, you will die. And you can never begin to be ready for death too early. And you can never begin to be ready for death until you see what our text wants you to see, which is the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ. That's the simple theme that I want to show you from verses 8 through 11. The resurrection hope of, of Jesus Christ. We'll look at number one, Christ's confidence to Christ's deliverance, and thirdly, Christ's assurance. Now, kids, did you notice in Psalm 16, as I read all of it, the verse that declares Christ's resurrection? Now, if you didn't see it, I want to show it to you. I'm going to show it to you in a different book of the Bible. So flip ahead with me before we get to Christ's confidence to Acts chapter 2. If you know anything about this portion of God's Word, it's on this day, the day of Pentecost, that the risen, ascended, exalted Christ, he poured out his spirit upon his church. And Peter, one of his apostles, he began to preach as a sermon that we might say is the first true new covenant sermon. And he's preaching the gospel in the unction and power of the spirit. And notice if you flipped over to Acts chapter 2, what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. He says, God raised Jesus up. Loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, concerning him, him being Jesus Christ. And then you notice, what does it quote? Our sermon text today, Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11. And then he gives the apostolic commentary. Notice verse 29 through 32. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn to him an oath, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, that's just an allusion to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
David, verse 31 says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. So if you want to ask Peter, where do I need to turn in the Bible to show the resurrection of Christ? You say, well, let's go to Psalm 16. If you ask the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13, where do I need to go to show the resurrection of Christ? Let us go to Psalm 16, particularly verse 10. So I think it's right then for us, not of course only to look at this psalm in in view of being prophetic words of Jesus Christ, but also I think words that we can even place on the lips of Christ Himself. So if we go back to Psalm 16, Christ's confidence, notice how verse 8 begins. David says, I have set the Lord, Yahweh, always before me. Now students, I wonder if you were to honestly evaluate your own heart, what is always, most often set before your eyes? David is saying, I have always set the Lord before me. Uh, We know even from our Lord Jesus' ministry, it was his daily delight to begin the day setting the Lord before his eyes. It was constant communion with God that was necessary to sustain him in his ministry, to strengthen him in his ministry. I wonder what tends to sustain you, to strengthen you in the midst of your service. So earnest is this always setting the Lord before me. It's as though God's at his right hand. Do you see how verse 8 continues? I've always set the Lord before me because he is at my right hand. I'm sure a number of you in the room might wake up early in the morning and you immediately set something at your right hand. Possibly a cup of coffee. Because without it, you don't have any energy. How many of us, of course, go through an ordinary day and we always have our phone at our right hand, for without it we have no information or connectedness. Or maybe others of you, you come home after a long day's work and you sit down at the couch and always have something at your right hand, a remote control, because without it you can't change whatever is in front of you. Something is going to be set at your right hand. And David says, it's the Lord. So constantly set before my eyes, it's as though He is at my right hand. And what's... What's the confidence that comes from that constant communion and attention? Look at how verse 8 ends. He says, I shall not be shaken. I shall not be shaken. Just a few days ago, it was Friday afternoon. Family was getting ready to come up here for our Good Friday service. Kids are getting ready. Emily's working at the hospital, so I'm uh, getting them ready before we have to drive in. And Our three-year-old Boston uh, shrieks out from one of the hallways, I saw a snake! He had evidently been playing in the garage and I thought surely he didn't see a snake. So I began to walk out that way. And sure enough, I turned left. And right there in the corner of the garage is a rat snake. And Boston and my youngest daughter, immediately, what did they do? Stood right at my side. (laughs) Now, why did they do that? Because they feel confident there. They feel safe there. They feel secure there. That's what David is saying, isn't it? The Lord is at my right hand. Perhaps even better said, I am at his right hand. Therefore, I shall not be shaken. And the logic continues. Look at verse 9. The only consequence in his mind of such confidence is joy. Verse 9 begins, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. I think that's a rather significant statement because what you need to know is we, we, we don't know the circumstances that accompany David's writing of this psalm. Sometimes he tells us. Many times he doesn't. 
But if you just glance up to verse 1 of this psalm and his initial shout and cry is one of preservation, it seems quite likely that he's writing this psalm in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of despair, and so therefore it's necessary for him to remember the confidence that he has in his difficulty and despair. But, but notice significantly how verse 9 is telling us that even in the midst of such difficulty and despair, he can still abound in joyfulness, he can still abound in, in gladness. I wonder if some of you are in the room today and you feel like the last year of your life or perhaps many years of your life has been full of losing more than winning. Spiritually speaking, life has been full of more suffering than success. I wonder if you have the heart of the psalmist here. And even in the midst of all your trials and troubles, you still know great joy. Because isn't that the truth of our Savior? He knew trials, troubles, all kinds of hardships and hurts but nevertheless was always abounding in gladness and joy. So it leads to the final statement of confidence. Look at the end of verse 9. My flesh also dwells secure. It's not just my spirit is secure. He's now saying my, my flesh, my body is secure. And that simple statement seems to move him from reflection about this life to now reflection on his coming life, from Christ's confidence to Christ's deliverance. Notice how verse 10 begins. For you will not... Abandon my soul to Sheol. So students, do you, do you recognize the logic there? Verse 9 ends, my flesh is secure. Why can you say that? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the ground of his hope. That's the resurrection hope that David has in this passage. Now kids, uh, you probably haven't ever heard someone, perhaps in your family, maybe not many times, certainly not at your school, talk about Sheol. Do you know what? Sheol is. In Hebrew thinking, it was just the realm of the dead. Now, we might say it a little more commonly in our language today. It's just the grave, the tomb. It was the place that you went to after you died where there was no waiting and watching and looking and listening. That's why even one of our old hymns that is well known to many of us says, When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, but he's saying, you will not leave me there. Because you see how they've got this complimentary cup that the end of verse 10 says. Or let your Holy One see corruption. And that's where the apostles say, that is speaking of Jesus Christ. God will not, God could not let His Holy One see corruption. Because we know in the perfection of Jesus Christ when He died that sin had no wages that He couldn't pay. Death thus had no claim over him. It was not possible then for him to stay in the grave. He, he must rise again. And that great good news of resurrection is the gospel of Christianity. There is nothing more unbelieving to our unbelieving world than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you know, don't you, that it is the distinguishing feature of our faith. Mormons don't look to a resurrected Joseph Smith Buddhists don't look to a resurrected Buddha. Muslims don't worship a resurrected Muhammad. But we adore a resurrected king. Because he has fought the good fight, finished the race that we failed at. So therefore, he not only died, but death couldn't hold him. And he rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death. Death couldn't and wouldn't. Hold him down. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is if you turn from your sin and trust in him, death won't hold you down. Death cannot hold you down. 
This promise of not seeing corruption does belong to all of those who know Christ's deliverance. So see his confidence, deliverance. Verse 11 now tells us to know Christ's assurance. For a few years in my early life, when my family took an annual vacation in July to a family camp in Colorado, and it was kind of nestled into the Rocky Mountains, and, and one of the ordinary adventures that we would look forward to, or at least my dad and I would look forward to, is, is climbing a nearby mountain peak on Wednesday when we were there. And all of us young guns, what, what we had created was this uh, competition out of the climb. Uh, the goal was to wake up at dawn, sun first came up, and we were to make it to the summit and back by the time they served lunch. And real climbers would do that. And, and the, the camp was situated, you know, halfway up the mountain, so it was possible to genuinely make it to the summit and back by lunchtime. But you had to run. So I woke up one morning, my dad and sister started walking, and I started running. And I ran, and I ran, and I kept running, but I quickly realized I don't recognize anything over here. And I've climbed up and down this mountain before. This is new. I did actually come across a black bear on part of that run. But I decided to keep running because I'm going to make it back by lunchtime. And a couple of hours go by, and I made it back by lunchtime. And everyone said, so you, you got up and back by lunchtime? I said, nope. I've just been running in circles for the last four or five hours. And the whole point was, in a way that we still laugh about in my family, is we just missed the path and just kept going and going and going. Jesus Christ, of course, never missed the path. Verse 11 says, you made known to me the path of life. God must make known to you the path of life, the way of life. Jesus, who is the way, the truth. And the life. Without that knowledge, what will happen in your life spiritually? But you just will go in circles, running and running, striving and efforting and getting nowhere. But according to his sovereign grace and mercy through his word and spirit, he speaks to you, makes known to you this path of life, resurrection life that is in his son. And it's a path that leads, notice verse 11, to God's presence. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. I'm sure many of you have perhaps a family member or a friend who has that personality. Whenever they come into the room, it just lights up the entire atmosphere of the room. Spirits are lifted. Happiness ensues. If you have such a person, you need to recognize that, of course, that is but a spark compared to the light-giving Son of Righteousness, the presence of Jesus Christ that awaits His people. It's the fullness of God's presence. Even joys there in verse 11 is plural. So great is the joy that belongs to those who have been resurrected to eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's a path that leads to God's presence and it's a path that leads to pleasures forever. You see the end of verse 11. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The children, if you're anything like my kids, uh, we could go later on this week to perhaps a candy store, a toy store, a Lego store, Maybe for some of you, even a video game store. And what would they be there before your eyes are shelves of pleasures. It can't compare, can it, to the pleasures that belong at God's right hand forevermore. Such is Christ's assurance that if you know him and the power of his resurrection, what you then know is the path of life, 
that leads to his eternal presence, which is full of eternal pleasures. I hope you have seen and are seeing his confidence that Christ gives, the deliverance that he gives, the assurance that he gives, all the resurrection hope that he offers to you today. I've thought in recent weeks how a number of books that marked my life in reading fiction were full of all of these portals. And some of you may know what I'm talking about. If you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you have the wardrobe, which is a portal to a magic land. Or you read Harry Potter and you have Platform 9 and 3 quarters, which is a portal to very much a wizarding world. Or you have Alice in Wonderland where this doorway to Wonderland is a portal to something altogether different. And we could go on down the list, couldn't we, of countless portals that have offered a new life to people, to characters. And I think reverently we can say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is indeed a portal to another world. It's the world as it should be. It's the world of fullness of joy and fellowship with the Father. A world of eternal life and forgiveness of blessedness and happiness. In order to help you see how it is indeed this kind of open way into that life to come, I want you to see three final things as we begin to close. First, I want you to notice how Christ's resurrection opens the way to certainty. When the Apostle Paul preaches in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ was raised in accordance with the Scriptures, what Scriptures did he have in mind? But passages like Psalm 16, that Christ's resurrection proves, among other things, that God's word is, is true. That every promise is yes and amen. It's not just God's stamp of approval on his son's perfection, but it's his seal of authority and surety of all of his promises. Do you want to know why you can trust in God's word? Why you can trust in God's son? Because he has been raised. As God said all the way back in Psalm 16, that he would be raised. Secondly, it opens the way to security. Security, you notice that, don't you? These confident statements, verse 8, I shall not be shaken. Verse 9, my flesh dwells secure. Verse 10, these promises and assurances, you will not abandon my soul or let it see corruption. I told one of our evening services just recently about a time a few Tuesdays back when our entire family had uh, gone down to Dallas to bury Emily's great aunt who who died in the Lord at the ancient age of 105. And later on that evening when we were eating dinner, there was a point at which we were talking about something altogether different, but, uh, but I noticed on, on our young daughter's face this kind of glazed look of concern, you know, that little kids would get. And so it was either Emily or I that said, hey, Sarah, what's going on? And maybe it's because we were talking about Aunt Lee's death or just memories of Aunt Lee, but she just said with utter sincerity, I don't want to die. And then Knox picked up the cry, I don't want to die either. <laughs> and then Boston knew what he should say, I don't want to die. <laughs> and you take that as a parent, don't you, as just a moment, almost like this divine assistance. Because kids, we know why you're scared. But you know why you need not fear. But Christ's resurrection has given you all the security and safety. That if you come to him, what is the promise of this text? In the same way that his death was not the end, so will your death not by be the end. It's almost as though as you think of your life as a story. It's just the end of the preface that opens up 
to an eternal story where every chapter gets better than the next, such as the security that belongs God's people, which leads to the third point in terms of Christ's resurrection opens the way of eternity. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Only those that know the resurrection of Jesus Christ have trusted in it or relying upon it will know this joy that awaits in all eternity. That you can face your dying day, you can come to your deathbed and know that you are going, yes, indeed, to a much better place. But perhaps you noticed, even in this passage, verse 8 and 11 particularly, how we have this language about God's right hand being a place of prominence and power. Don't you know who is at God's right hand this day as you sit in here? But none other than the resurrected king. So if you see his confidence, deliverance, and assurance. If you know his certainty, security, and the eternity of forgiveness he offers you. What are you holding on to? But hope. But happiness. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is God's right hand. Who is the king of resurrection. Who thus alone can give you. Resurrection hope. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to have the confidence of David, the confidence of a true son of David. Father, we know that many of us are weak in our faith at the prospect of dying, of finishing our earthly course is one that is full of difficulty and despair. We pray that you would give us that security of not being shaken because Jesus has been raised. Let's rejoice again even this day that we know that our faith isn't futile, our preaching isn't purposeless. That we're still not in our sins. For Christ has been raised. And he is seated at your right hand. The very place from which eternal pleasures come. And are found. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.